Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. I'm Michelle Miao here on Thursdays. We're here at the Commonwealth Club with my co-host, John Zipper. Hey, Michelle. Welcome back. We continue with our whole focus this month on immigration issues. So we've had policy consultants here. We've had uh, folks from the legal organizations who have talked about legal cases. Immigration is a hot topic right now. It's a huge focus, um, controversial, obviously. And from my perspective, as an everyday citizen, um, it's not even like a hard-hitting journalist, you know, uh, uh, somebody who's been studying our immigration policies historically and politically. It's, I'm just a concerned citizen. And the conclusion that I can make after hearing stories from volunteer attorneys, from uh, uh, legal scholars, from policy consultants, the changes that the administration wants to make as it applies to the immigration community or immigrant community, refugee community, undocumented community, uh, isn't necessarily so much of a change for the better of our country. It, you know, and that, that is a, a blanket statement, but it really is a, uh, there's a political agenda behind it um, in which the, it is a, a mo- there's a motive to rile up a certain base um, so this is my opinion, and and that there there ha- there hasn't been much re- research or thought backing up some of the policy changes or proposals to do so, and and that it really comes down to not giving much care to those impacted, and and there's this very creepy, very scary, nonchalant attitude that human beings are disposal, you know, that, that they, that, that they don't matter. This is, I'm uttering this and having the own recognition for myself. Um, and then at the end of the day, if we had, if we had policies as far as who can stay in this country or the kind of people that this country would want to live here or, or immigrate here, they would be of a, of a very certain or specific skin color and of a class background. Um, anyway, we'll do more conclusions <laughs> because we have a few more programs and we do have a great program today. Uh, our guest, I can't say too much because I'll tell her life story and she's here to talk about her life story. But we went from talking about policies, we talked about some legal cases. Today, our intention is really to talk about uh, immigration and, and kind of the horrible things that can happen in when you have a president like this president in this administration from a very personal perspective, a, a, a human perspective. And so our guest today is Nia Nord. Um, I was I was trying to think about like how do I introduce her without telling her entire story in in two two minutes. But so we'll just go ahead and do the honors, and we'll ask you the same question we ask all of our guests when we start the program: is sharing you know a, uh, your your story um, of what you know it was like to be a little Nia before the reason why we brought you onto the program. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you, John. My name is Nia. I am uh, currently a Yuri Koshiyama Fellow at Advancing Justice Asian Law Caucus. And uh, the organization, the Law Caucus, is very dear to me because they were really instrumental in uh, presenting a legal case for me and helping me fight deportation to Cambodia. And um, I have been out for one year, released from detention, 
and I spent 15 and a half years incarcerated for a crime that um, I was barely 18 at that time, and my co-defendant, my abuser, he, in a jealous rage, um, feared that he was going to lose me and to another um, man, my supervisor at that time. I had found interest in him, and um, he forced me to confront my supervisor and uh, out of fear, um, after having been, been raped by him, he um, shot my supervisor twice in the head and killed him. Um, people, people today, they, um, I do have some um, lashback um, throughout the years, especially during my time incarceration. Um, they don't understand how come I didn't seek help, uh, seek support, um, that I could have protected my victim, David. I think um, there's this um, onset that um, if they don't understand a survivor, a domestic violence survivor, their mentality, basically um, being convicted of murder, like you're labeled, uh, marked as, you know, a bad person. You did this one herbal deed. That's who you are, you know, for the rest of your life. And... Um, so basically, yeah, that I was convicted, you know, at 21 years old after coming forward three years later um, with the strength of um, my coworkers, telling them my fears that night that happened, why I believe he was going to kill me if I didn't um, go through helping him to confront my supervisor. And that is, um, again, like I feel... Um, the excessive um, punishment and crime of uh, people of vulnerable like communities um, being minority, um, don't you know low income family don't know the system, and uh, then you're funneled into the prison system and um, you're just left with this excessive time. For myself, I was sentenced to life also life without parole. It's called like the second. Um, the death penalty case, meaning that um, it's an alternative death penalty case that you don't go to have a chance to go to parole board, meaning you're just going to rot away and die in prison. That's kind of like a nice term of saying it. And then if you're an immigrant, also like myself, um, because of my conviction, aggravated felony makes you deportable. And it was lost passed in the 90s where, um, again, you can... The immigration judge will take no consideration of uh, what you did in prison to turn your life around or any circumstances of how um, how you ended up in prison or, um, you know, what you've done, again, like to rehabilitate yourself. Like they don't care if the, the governor lets you out saying, I found you suitable, that you could be, you know, um, a good citizen again and, um, you know, make amends with community. You know, um, you've you're not the same person who you were when you were 16, 17, 18, you know, 20 years old. And uh, that is, you know, so far, like, for me, as an experience of being, um, you know, an immigrant uh, family that fled my mom um, during that time, the Cambodian War, um, the Vietnam War. Let's yeah. let's talk about let's start there and and you know because I feel like again there's there's so many things wrong right now with this administration that has really in my opinion taken advantage of the broken system the immigration system the criminal justice system and and really doing a lot of horrible things but the what I also find is like the narrative even the media has mixed messages of immigration and the history of it in this country for example Cambodia. In, in, the, in the late 70s and just the United States and their contributions to the political chaos that was going on there. The bombings, um, getting involved in the Vietnam War, I mean, they were directly involved in the displacement, in the killings um, of many Southeast Asian people in which 
a lot of us had to flood war-torn our own, you know, home countries. Um, and that is a result of, in my opinion, the late 70s, the Southeast Asian uh, migration to the United States. So when you talk about, you know, coming here as an immigrant escaping Cambodia, I, want, I really want listeners to remember that, that, that you know, the, the images that they're seeing now in today's media, the caravan of migrants, mm-hmm. like these you know, horrible people uh, with drugs and crime and rah, coming like, you know, we, we need to remember we need to remember, uh, you know, uh, take back uh, asylum seekers, why people come to this country. I'd love for you to share your personal story of why your family fled Cambodia. Now, my my mom, she, at that time, she was about 18 years old, um, grew up in Cambodia in a farm community, agrarian. Um, her and her family, she's being the youngest of um, three siblings. They were considered like um, the pure Cambodians, um, the ones that are not infiltrated, influenced by um, like Western um, culture, that, um, that they were not a threat to Pol Pot and his government that they were not going to overthrow. So the farmers were like the okay ones, but yet they still lived in fear because they see what was being done, you know, around them, um, people getting killed, whatnot. And uh, from my understanding, like, I don't know how many family members I've lost, but my mother, she became separate from her family. She um, fled her village. Um, the Khmer Rouge were coming, and she fled for weeks with other um, Khmer through, um, you know, line through um, landmines, through you know swamps, she witnessed you know, a woman just just rotting basically to death, and no one would help carry her across the river. And my mother had shared with me like she thought about helping the lady, but who's going to help her? You know, with this lady, and she's just you know very vulnerable with other like members there. But basically, my mom she found refuge in the Thailand refugee camp, and um, it was still not a safe place. My understanding, she didn't share this to me like. Um, right before I was released from prison, that um, she was a survivor of rape. Um, she got ganged raped by a few Thai soldiers, and she was you know, fearful of um, telling uh, village folks what happened because they were blamed her. Because in the Cambodian culture, it's, um, it's really um, the women are, you know, it's like a patriarchal society where women are, um, you know, listen to their men, the obedient, submissive one, and uh, women are not valued, um, you know, highly like men are, um, because we're considered cloth and men are gold. That's kind of like, um, you know, the, the slogan or the logo that is. And um, so instead of telling um, the villagers what happened to her, and out of fear and safety, my mother fled to a Thailand, another Thailand refugee camp, and that's where she had... Uh, been advised by the elders, like, you are very young, you know, you're attractive, you have to um, get married, so that way, like other men in the village will leave you alone. So she ended up um, meeting my biological father, from my understanding, she didn't love him, but it was just out again, pure survival and safety, my mother, and I was born, um, I remember, uh, she told me that after I was a year old, my, my father ended up leaving her for another woman, but she told me as I was growing up that it was, he wanted to go back to, you know, Cambodia, but that was not the case. So by then she had filed paperwork um, for us to be sponsored to America. Uh, while I was in refugee camp, I have very like vague memories of myself. Um, always needing my mother, uh, being alone, uh, running around, just feeling a sense of like loneliness. Um, had, I think one playmate at that time, but, um, it was not a very, you know, happy place. Um, 
right? And um, she, during the day, my mother uh, worked in the rice mill. Um, and while I was, again, like, you know, between, I came here when I was, finally, we, re- we migrated to um, America, just mom and I. And I had, like, no memories of um, getting on the airplane. I just knew that there um, was a small American family that sponsored us. And I remember they had, like, a, a child who was um, my age at that time. How old were you? I was five, five. yeah. I was five. And I remember, um, it was around Christmas time, I was helping the um, the little girl like decorated Christmas trees and it was a time where I felt like okay felt safe you know mm-hmm. happy but unfortunately we ended up leaving the um, sponsored um, home we ended up moving with another Cambodian family and shortly thereafter um, the Cambodian family they left to San Diego so we followed shortly and that's where she had met my stepfather um, soon to be stepfather and um, from their relationship they, um, I can describe it as very violent, uh, very abusive. My stepfather's very controlling. Again, um, he felt like for me as being his stepchild that she needed to discipline me um, because my mom was not, um, my mom just allowed me to do what I wanted to do, you know, as, as a six, five, six-year-old. And I was very like boisterous, talkative. And I knew like, who is this guy? He's not my father. And um, so... I had to eventually like accept him um, by force, if you can say. And um, I, I really loved my mother, and I didn't understand you know, as early um, between you know from six years on, like he would um, you know beat my mother. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand when she did seek help, they would tell her go back to him. You know what did you do wrong? And that message to a child was like. I don't understand, Mom, if somebody hurts you, why are you still with him? And it, I was very, like, confused growing up. It's like, uh, what you see on TV, would you go to school, um, you see, like, this perfect, like, family, always happy, love, you know, acceptance. But my home, I felt, like, very chaotic. Um, I felt like I was always walking on eggshells. Um, when I would try to, you know, beginning help my mom, seeing the violence that was done to her, she would tell me, you know, get away, you know, um, don't help me. But, you know, it's my mom. I loved her. Yeah. I want to protect her. It, it, yeah. Yeah, I've been doing interviews for, for, for 10 years, and it's taken me a really long time to, to talk about, you know, um, even just my own, to be open about my own life. And I find that even looking for issues or interviews mm-hmm. with other people uh, in my community, like culturally, Southeast Asian community, it's very scary that we have parallel um, experiences because I always thought that that was just like very specific to me. So even yeah. my mom and having a stepfather, we did go through the same things. Right. John, question: um, Did you have anyone you could confide in, or anyone you could talk to? No, I, I when I went to school, I felt really like ashamed um, because I felt like my family was different than any other family. Even um, you were thinking everyone else's family was yeah, like it was, what you see on it TV. It was happy. It was peachy. Even um, the the Camara families. We were, um, you know, um, had you know, my mom was able to connect with. They didn't experience like that violence, you know, the the stepchildren or you know from their father, and. Um, and can I ask, was was your stepfather Khmer? Or? No, he he he's he's he was Vietnamese. Yeah, mm-hmm. he was Vietnamese, but he but he spoke Khmer, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so, so he eventually started isolating my mother from her friends. Um, 
I would witness, you know, she wanted to go to school, learn, you know, go to ESL classes, and he would accuse her again of like, um, like of cheating on him. You know, it's just like their relationship was really, um, I felt like, like a teenage relationship. It's like, you guys are adults, like, why am I the child? And like, their fighting would be like in front of us as the children. And I realized like that it's not healthy, you know, and it affects us a great deal. Being children, um, growing up in a household where you're witnessing violence, you know, experiencing it as well. And again, very ashamed of telling. Because um, I remember um, the police were not to be involved. Um, I remember we lived in neighborhoods where um, neighbors were selling drugs, you know. It, it, you know, we moved a lot as well, so we would never felt like very um, like home or solidified in a safe, stable environment. So I remember one time, like the neighbors were selling drugs, and the police came to me and asked me, "Do you see like where the neighbor hides the drugs?" And I thought, "Oh, these are the cops. Like, um, perhaps if I help them, then you know, I'm doing a good deed." So when I helped the cop and I told my mom what happened, she ended up like beating me and saying yeah. the cops were not to be trusted. Like, you don't, you know, um, get cops involved in any you know situation. Yeah. You know, like I should have yeah. learned that by now there's so much to unpack even there and um but that but obviously as we're talking about this this all leads to the first time you you meet you know this abusive older man who uh, in the beginning you feel like this potentially could be an escape from, from a lot of that, like, you know, love, love and affection that you did not have at home. Right. Let's talk, let's, let's, let's talk about that. Right. Growing up, um, I had um, formed this belief that was modeled to me, of course, no good, you know, model relationship, definitely from my step parents. So I believed, um, you know, in order, you know, to find that validation that I was, you know, missing at home, um, to build my self-esteem, which I barely had any, because I didn't even like, like who I was as a person, you know, um, how I looked, or I felt like I was awkward, just isolated, just not very sociable, didn't have many friends, again, because I was hiding, like, the truth from friends, like, what was happening at home, you know, embarrassed, and um, by then, you know, as a child that witnessed so much, like, violence already that was happening, um, so how do I deal with it? I said, I need, like, I need some I, I need somebody like to, to love me and accept me, right? And um, so throughout high school, of course, I was involved in school and in sports, had good grades, but I didn't know how to like to date, um, to, to, to know what was health, to know what was good for me in a relationship, like dating, right? So I, you know, I thought at 16 years old, perhaps um, if I would go on the internet and somehow I would find, you know, um, like, like people that were interested in me and that could give me like that validation, that acceptance, because again, like I didn't know how to like date, you know, high school, you know, and not, I felt, not, not yeah. to mention being Southeast Asian and culturally right. at home. I mean, you're not to have a boyfriend, right. uh, at least until you're done with school. And I mean, yeah, there were so many things yeah. there. My mom would just trip out for me going to the public library. I really wish I told her at that time. I was like, I'm a lesbian. It's fine. <laughs> right. But, um, but yeah, so meeting Mr. Barker, I, I forget, or is it, what yes. was his name? Yeah, Ron, yeah. Ron Barker. Ron he Barker, was, um, the older guy. You right. met him online. I met him online, and I was um, 17 going to my senior year of high school, and he was 34. Um, I thought he was in his mid-20s. Um, he was a con artist, a charmer, meaning I've never dealt with anybody like that dynamic like him. Mm-hmm. That Because anybody that I dated or um they were truthful, you know, how old they were, what they were doing. And um, 
he saw the vulnerability in me, um, you know, as a as a 17 year old that um, he would, you know, told me like he loved me right away, that he made promises like he would marry me. And I felt good like being, um, having that validation from him. But in a way, um, not so good when I would start noticing patterns and behaviors in the beginning that felt so much like my stepfather. Um, said he didn't want to share me with any of my friends. I wanted me to come home right away, um, stop getting involved in high school sports. Basically, I was um, doing what he wanted that was, you know, he felt that was good for, for me, for us. Um, but that way, knowing, you know, today it was like his way of isolating and controlling me. Mm-hmm. Again, like, um, why would you have any say, like, what I should wear or how I should, you know, tweeze my eyebrows? I mean, I thought that was odd. But, um, you know, I conform as much to him to try to, you know, appease him. And, you know, when he was very secretive about his life and I would have a question like, um, like, do you have any family or whatnot? When I was trying to question him, um, he didn't like that. He, he believed like I was like disobeying him because um, he felt like it was kind of like the type of like um, the relationship where, you know, um, like my mom and stepdad relationship, like the woman doesn't question the man. And um, so when he brought this young child around, um, Cody, he was four-year-old son at that time. And I said, you didn't tell me you have a son. And then he said, well, and he said, are you trying to leave me? Um, you know, in the relationship, because I have a son, I go, no, I just want you to be truthful with me. Like, is his mom, are you married to him or what? You know, and he said, no, I'm single. And, you know, we're just, you know, having custody of our son. So I, I had doubts, but yet um, I gave him the benefit of the doubt. And um, by then he would show up again, um, just with like with guns he was sneaking inside my house and he said he was involved in mafia and by then it's just like he started slowly revealing to me like who he really you know um is and uh, not betray this guy you know who i thought was um you know a good guy and um by then i felt like very like alone like not sure um who to like tell to share, to share like what was going on. And I thought as long as I, um, you know, continue to be with him, like things would get better, you know, because sometimes, um, w- yeah. Sorry to interrupt. Yes. Do we, you, you thought things might get better. Were you thinking he would change or that right. you would adapt to him and be able to accept him? What, what yeah, it, it went like both ways that he would yeah. change and I would um, slowly, like I would be happy again. But um. Um, as as we know, like um, those that are in these type of relationship, like domestic relationship, abusive relationship, we have this expectation. Like if I got myself into it, that I can like uh, make it better. That he would change again, and uh, that doesn't necessarily happen because abusers um, they don't change for their partners. You know, if they want to change, they have to like seek that help. You know that they do have, um, you know, issues. Um, these abusive issues that need to be dealt with, like through therapy. You know, and, yeah, and, therapy. You know, not not right. to mention you're you're young and you have your right. own trauma that you have experienced and and. For myself, a right. domestic violence survivor, um, yeah, right. You cannot change certain things, and the other person has to get the help. Now, the incident, the the horrible incident um, in which you start dating an, an after school program supervisor, and you know Richard. Uh, David. Yes. David. Mm-hmm. Uh, David is the uh, supervisor. Richard is the older gentleman. Or did I get that wrong? Um, Ron is. Ron. Ron is my boyfriend. Yeah. That's Thank right. you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Ron. Yes. So um, 
because I because I do want to I want to ask a lot of questions about being detained and then uh, I'm sorry incarcerated and then detained and then kind of where we move on from that, but that incident in which Ron. Um, uh, I'm just, you know, it's so hard for me to talk about. It's so tragic. Ron murders David uh, in a fit of jealousy. I mean, this incident led to your incarceration. I was, when I, when I was arrested at, um, three years after David was murdered, when I was arrested, um, in the courtroom during my trial, the judge had said, you know, you have more responsibility than your um, co-defendant, than your abuser. And I didn't understand, like, how do I have responsibility for his actions? How did you not take um, the fact that he beat me and he raped me? Um, how do you not take um, someone's fears um, into consideration, someone's fear of being killed um, into consideration? And um, the prosecutor argued, her fears had nothing to do with that night. She knew exactly what she was doing. Um, she went along with him. She had every opportunity to warn him to stop it, but she chose not to. And I think um, that's where the um, like the miscon- misconception about like unless you're at that moment in a life and death situation. Um, you don't know how your reaction or response will be, especially when it's like fear-based. And um, that's, that's why I was sentenced to like life without parole. Um, I, ha- I shared the same responsibility like my co-defendant as if I was to shoot David himself. So you, you were yeah. convicted of, of what, of being of, his accomplice? Of, yes, or? of lying in wait. Um, he was also convicted of the gun charge, which I wasn't. But again, the fact that the judge said you you should have you hold more responsibility. You're responsible for his actions. But what? Um, but on the flip side was at his trial. We had separate trials because the reason why we had separate trials is because when I was in jail, he had put a, a murder for hire against my attorney and my family if I didn't take responsibility for his behavior. And, and none of that was put into was put into um, consideration during my trial. None of that, what that, happened. That wasn't used as yeah, evidence. No, because they felt the only thing that used evidence is was my, um, my interview with the cops at that time, like my 10-hour interview. So they took like my words and used it against me. And um, the reason why I seeked help, you know, because, because it's either like, you know, as a survivor, it's like when, like when, when is enough is enough? When, because I feared that this time, like he was really going to kill me after, you know, the fact that Dave was killed three years ago, that he, w- I felt like my time was ending, you know, because he's tried numerous times to kill me already. And um, he believed like some, somehow that I was going to break free from him, that he wouldn't have that control over me anymore. And, um, that's one reason why, you know, I seek the help from the police. And plus, I wanted to to let go of, you know, the, the secret that I was harboring for years, you know, because it just ate, you know, for me and manifested, you know, because people think like, well, if you were really like um, remorseful or if you're really not guilty, you you could have seeked help right away. Well, you, you know, you went to the police after. Yes, I went years. to the police. You were years. the one yeah. who went to the police to tell them. What happened? Right, and on the flip side, people say, "Well, if it weren't for you, um, you know, he would have been alive today." Um, you know, I you know, this 
it's kind of like I have people that understand, but people still like blame me today. You know, people feel like I should like rot and die in prison. Um, that's like their their opinion. I only hope that um, you know. Sometimes those that still um, you know have this backlash towards me, I only wonder like I'm sorry like what's really going on with you where you have to try to make me feel, you know like piece of because really, no one can make me feel like a piece of myself. Um, so, you know I live with this every day, you know knowing that I'm responsible for you know taking of David's life, but yet um, you know I'm human also, and I feel like as humans where we can rehabilitate we can turn our lives around and use what we you know um for the bad for the good you know to continue like to help others and um that's that's what i do like have to deal with today but but um like going back to to what happened to me it's like again um and it's just not me. It's too many criminalized survivors, you know, because I work with Survivor and Punish, their coalition that helped um, transgender survivors, um, women survivors that are like, um, you know, marginalized, that being sentenced for, um, for, for crimes that, again, one, they're protecting themselves. One, um, they did not like want to harm their victim. But again, it's like life and death situation. And um, and they're being like sentenced to, like, like to die and to um, to die in prison, you know. First-time offenders as well. Yeah. You know, we have this system in America where we feel like, you know, accept the sentencing, you know, um, hard on crime, but really it just doesn't like affect the person that's doing the time, but it's affecting like families and communities. Like with this mass incarceration that we're having, it's um, it doesn't resolve anything. You know, it's just like throwing away uh, human beings that can. Um, that have, you know, can turn their lives around. They're disposable. You know? Yeah. Uh, Rodessa Jones was uh, mm-hmm. a, a participant here at the Commonwealth mm-hmm. Club who has an organization um, mm-hmm. and works with a lot of women who are incarcerated. And one of the things that I've learned from speaking with her is that a lot of the time uh, when you talk to mm-hmm. women who are incarcerated and you hear their stories, a lot of these cases, women are in the wrong place at the wrong time or victims of domestic violence mm-hmm. or abuse. Uh, and their their crimes um, or misdemeanors or you know, they're, they're small crimes, but they're serving really, really long sentences or they're basically the ones who are serving the, the, the time for the crime, if, if that makes that makes sense. So I want to go back to that because you served 15 years, um, just about 15 years right. for this in. In 15 years is a long time. It's a long time for someone to say, you know, to yourself, I don't know how to get out of this. This is, I'm, they're, I'm, they're, they put me in here for, for life without parole. I don't know who I'm supposed to reach out mm-hmm. to for help who's going to listen to me and understand, you know, my side where I'm a, a victim of abuse. Like they'll all, to, for me right now, don't know, you know, it's just started reading mm-hmm. about your story, but I had gone through abuse and I know, you know, that mm-hmm. uh, at the time there's just so much going on for you emotionally that, you know, people ask you that question. Why didn't you get out? Why didn't you call the police? Why didn't you? All of those things that seem so logical, mm-hmm. like none of that exists during the time that you are are being abused. So I understand that where I could sit here and tell you, like, right. I wouldn't the first thing in my mind didn't cross was why 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 didn't you you know go to the police before um standing there when the incident the murder happened so the question comes back to 15 years so easy to to get to a place of despair right how did you get to a place where 
you yourself logically and you know rationalized with yourself that you know I I I should not be in here for life. That when I went to um, Central California Women's Facility, I didn't realize it was like the largest women you know prison you know in the world. You know it holds like over um, three thousand women at that time when I went in, and um, I realized that there were really many women just like myself like my story, being a first-time offender, um, sentenced excessively like to life without parole. And um, they're just like, again, um, they were able to get that healing inside prison, um, attended therapy sessions, help support our other survivors. Because really, um, I felt at that time, I thought I was like the only one like surviving. But then I got to know, you know, these women, you know, there's someone's mothers, daughters um, that had like very different backgrounds, but similar situations. Um, they were sharing stories how they ended up, you know, thought they met like Mr. Right or Miss Right, you know, end up um, being stuck in relationships, especially when there's children involved, like they can't get out. And when they did try to seek help uh, again, um, they, the, the finger was pointed back at them. Well, you got involved in him or her, then uh, you should know how to, um, you know, seek help or um, you should have found another alternative instead of like committing that crime. Or um, again, but majority of some of the women that were sentenced life without were not the main perpetrators, you know, like myself, you know, we weren't like the shooters. We were, um, some of them got involved perhaps like in a shoplifting that went bad and didn't know that, um, you know, their co-defendant was going to harm that victim, but they get the same sentence, you know, and um, because, again, it's like California at that time, they felt like acceptance and seeing mass punishment, um, give them the time, you know, do the crime. And um, but you hear you have like women that's that's just thriving inside a prison that have so much, you know, to give back. But yet they're stuck. Um, they went through all their appeals um, to the courts. The court just denies them, you know, and then um, but then, you know, in America, you know, we feel like we should protect domestic violence survivors. But how do you protect them? But they're also perpetrators, right? You don't want to deal with that. That's just like a hard issue that people don't want to deal with. Unless you're like the perfect victim, right? You, um, the perfect victim, meaning that you have no like criminal conviction, past history, like drug offenses. Um, you're not an addict, you know. Um, you, I, I'm, yeah. I'm going to throw, I'm going to throw race or, or class yeah, in that right. in a lot That's of that. All. John, I think you had a question um, and, and sorry, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Before. Actually, the question I was going to ask was, mm -hmm. I think just what you were getting at was just how did you cope emotionally and psychically? Yeah. And, yeah. Because I. It was like, how do I cope emotionally? Because I, I realized that I'm not alone, mm -hmm. that I found support through these women that spent like 15, 20 years are, are not like very healthy. They've gotten their college education in prison. They've um, become leaders, work with administration to build a like policy with, inside the prison, um, helping women to get their medical rights, their medical you know issues, helping um, to Gather, to create like um, support uh, within you know support within a prison community, and I found that very um, very admirable. And I said, I want to be just like them. I want to like, be healthy again. I wanted to know myself. I want to know who the heck Nia is. How did Nia end up in prison? Right, like because I didn't know who the, who I was going inside prison. You were very yeah, young. I was very young. And and and, and you I was know, very all that young, naive, you and I didn't like really get to experience like life before um, before you know the things that happened you know to me um, you know to to the to my crime you know to my you know to taking my victim's life. I was basically, even though I was 21, I was still like, I had this young kid mentality. 
And um, I was able to, again, start like feeling good about myself, um, being taking part in group activities, um, got to, you know, learn that I Know, knew that I, you know, love sports because I love running, you know, um, helping others to um, build self-esteem through running programs, through exercise classes, attending therapy and um, therapy, which was so hard because um, I had to talk about like things that happened that night, like to me, because I had blocked off so, you know, so much of it because I didn't want to deal with it, you know, and uh, but I had to like relived it. I had to tell like my truth. Um, I had to tell like th what happened that night. In, and I started with like small support groups, like like 10 and 20 people. And I said, this is what happened to me. This is what I did. And this is what I take responsibility for. And this is why I'm remorseful. And it takes a lot of like courage to talk about like the details of your crime or what happened. Because sometimes it's easier to like put it away, right? And, um, and because I've heard other like survivor stories, that's why they gave me courage to share my story. And I, that's what I wanted to do for others that were coming, you know, new into the prison as well. Um, but fortunately for myself, I had the um, pills court um, throughout my conviction because I was, and I said to, to myself, like, I don't deserve this life without parole. Like, I deserve perhaps some time, but not to spend the rest of my life in prison. So fortunately, they threw out my conviction and say, give her another trial because um, take the abuse into consideration what happened that night. Let, let's, I, I want to really understand this just because mm -hmm. if we, we can apply the same strategy mm -hmm. to other women who may be going through this and, and right. currently incarcerated. So you, did you have an attorney who, who helped you with the appeal process? Then this is... Because what we know in the in mm -hmm. the media is the, the 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 good news before the bad news again, which the governor pardoning you and and releasing you, but then that led to a different kind of detention. Right. So the appeal happened before the governor pardoned. The appeal happened six years into my incarceration. Um, by then, uh, I had gone. Um, an attorney actually that um, believed you know believed in my story. You know what I told that night and saying, you know what, um, we have psychologists that really like um, affirm to, um, because they diagnosed me with intimate partner battering, battered women's syndrome at the time. And um, the court of appeals like, say take that um, psychologist diagnosis and um, put, you know, go forward with another trial. Um, so what the government, what the prosecutor wanted to do was um, try to give me the same time back to life without. But fortunately, um, a second judge, a different judge, he said that um, I believe uh, Ms. Norn did not um, premeditate. She didn't want her victim dead. And I believe she did suffer the effects of battered intimate you know, partner syndrome before, during, after um, you know, David's murder. And um, so by then, it's like, you know, as an LWAP, and people heard about my story, getting my LWAP conviction like thrown out, it was something that really happens, you know, because once you get sentenced to LWAP, you get sentenced to LWAP, you go through all the exil, all the pills process, and you're just left with that sentence, right? You don't go to board, you just die in prison. But for me, um, miraculously, I call it a miracle because the Court of Appeals, like, believed, like, gave me another opportunity. So again, at the um, my second trial, I was convicted of second-degree murder, um, of not guilty of arson because of duress. It's, it's kind of like a contradiction because the um, you know the prosecutor they're saying that um, 
Well, she premeditated, but then the jury disagreed, like, no, but she was under duress. So they should have not found me guilty, period. <laughs> I'm so confused. You're, yeah. you're guilty of second-degree murder, but not guilty under duress. Yes, like, that's, yes, California yeah, uh, law is very confusing because they f- duress is not applicable to second-degree murder in the state of California. Well, I, to, to me, as, as not, not yeah. a legal scholar, again, to me, that just sounds like we need to continue to uh, incarcerate you or to put it in, in record that, yeah. you know, we need to blame somebody for something that has happened. Now, let's fast forward to, mm-hmm. as I do want to leave some space for our rather large audience for questions um, <laughs> for Unia, but... But uh, but yes, yeah, so I mentioned the governor, you know, pardoning your case of, uh, eventually, in which then yeah. Well, he didn't. The word pardon actually he didn't pardon me. He granted me uh, release from prison. Okay. He found me um, suitable for parole. He agreed with the board of parole hearings after I went to my second parole hearing, and uh, he didn't he didn't dispute it. Basically, he said, Nia, you're free to go out to the community. Um, sorry if you're, you know, facing deportation. That's something that you have to take up with, you know, immigration. Wait, right. so the governor already knew that you would be facing deportation? Yeah, yeah. That you had already been notified once this, right. this that they said, okay, you, you don't deserve to be, you know, you can go out there in the community, but here's this other mm-hmm. thing. Right, because I, when you go up in front of parole board and you have uh, like immigration hall, you face deportation, you have to make two parole plans. One for the California, if I get to stay, two to Cambodia if I get departed. So the parole board have to see that you meet the requirement that you have good parole plans, right? I mean, that's just seems really like, but when I was at parole, the parole board said, oh, most likely you won't be, um, you know, deported anyways. You'll get to stay. But it's like they don't know until you actually um, have to fight your case in immigration. But um, by that time, Asian Law Caucus was already, like, getting to um, build a defense for me. And they were reaching out to the governor's office saying, please um, don't hand her over um, to ICE. Yeah. Right. Because um, CDC, California, you know, the prison, they do have, um, it's kind of like, they can either uh, cooperate with ICE or they don't. They don't, but majority of the time they do. They let ICE know that, hey, she's being released this day. You want to pick her up. So when I was released, I was arrested by ICE that day. Um, of course, I did not, you know, step into freedom. I spent um, six months in detention, um, fighting my case. Fortunately, we were able to build um, community support. Um, I testified at my immigration hearing. The fears of me being deported to Cambodia, because I believe. Um, my co-defendant, my abuser, would continue um, trying to take my life, the threats, um, because, again, he blames me for putting him in prison. And um, so the conditions in Cambodia, the government, um, you know, 65% of women are survivors um, in Cambodia. The government doesn't care, um, you know, if you're in a domestic violence relationship because they feel that's just a civil, you know, um, you know relationship matter um, that please don't deal with it. So I would have a less likely chance of um, being protected if I was supported. So the um, judge uh, gave me a, um, a cat claim, which is kind of like a silent claim, Convention Against Torture, meaning that, um, okay, so we can't deport you to Cambodia, but if any other country is willing to take you, then, um, then, then that would be okay, like if Canada, but that doesn't happen. So I'm sitting here in detention, and, but I refuse to um, let me go. Um, 
the community is saying, well, if the judge have granted her relief, you know, um, she can't be deported to Cambodia, so just let her out, you know. And plus, she's not at risk of the community. The governor already let her out already. And it took about, um, again, towards the six months, I had a bond hearing and another immigration judge. Um, I had to testify as well. Uh, she said, well, government attorney, you're not giving me any reasons why she would be a threat to the community if I were released her out on bond. Um, he kept bringing up like the old, you know, status factor, you know, case of my case that happened 20 years ago. And um, that's just no basis because when you do go to poor board, um, again, it's like, Something that happened 20 years ago, it's never going to change. The crime itself is never going to change. Like, what have you done since to, like, um, rehabilitate yourself to know that you're not at risk of community? And um, so the judge uh, granted me bond. And that was just, like, another miracle. And I was released after um, 16 years and one day, you know, from, yeah, prison, from ICE detention. I have so yeah. many other questions. And, again, I'm going to leave uh, some space for our, our large audience for questions. Um, but uh, John. Well, so so then bring us to where you are now. Are you? Uh, what's your status immigration wise? Are are you in danger of further deportation proceedings, or is that considered right done? So for right now, I'm um, I can't be deported, but I'm still at risk for deportation, meaning that. Um, if the government attorney were to like pursue trying to um, gather, I don't know what evidence they can try to gather to um, prosecute me again, then that might happen. But um, I lose my green card status. I, I don't have that. And if I were to leave the United States, I can't come back. Um, I you know right now like I would have to get a work permit. And uh, basically, I'm just kind of like stuck, you know, in limbo. And um, the only way that I can get my green card back or work towards my citizenship or feel like I'm at home, safely, secure, um, you know, as an immigrant is to get a pardon, you know, from the governor. And the pardon would open my um, immigration case and um, help me again to get, um, you know, my rights back. Um, and, and, that, and that pardon can happen perhaps, you know, years from now. But, is um, is there an or a, a request for pardon for your case? For right now, right? no. no. Um, I have I haven't decided to pursue it yet. Um, perhaps years down the line, um, and I and I th I think for right now, you know, being able to help those that are like similar situation like me facing deportation, um, having like done their time, their prison time, and again, um, youth like myself, um, they were able to like turn their life around. We have a few like community members like Bori Ai and Danny Tongsi. They, um, they were youth offenders. They did their time in prison. The governor let them out, but yet um, because of their um, refugee status, um, now they face deportation because I'm Fortunately, um, Cambodia does have, um, you know, repatriation agreement with the United States and Laos also been sanctioned, but they've been very quiet, have not accepted anybody. But yeah, again, Danny, just like other um, community members are at risk. Um, right now we have 60 detainees um, that are from, you know, various parts of the country that um, face deportation in Cambodia. And again, right. it's like, there's someone's like you know husband, loved one, a family member, and they have no other home but this is home, yeah. and it's just very sad and disheartening that um, they're being criminalized further for um, 
for something that happened saying, like 15, 20 my, years my ago. My opinion you know? of it all is just my opinion. Again, I'm not anybody smart or anything, but that if you if you commit a crime and you do the time, right. uh, you know, why, why do we extend or, or I guess, why, why do we double punish folks who write our immigrants versus, I mean, it, it, the idea is that if you already did the time, why are you not free after the fact? I'm going to open up uh, an opportunity for our guests today to ask a question. Would you like to ask Nia a question? Hi, um, what is the scope of your work with Asian Law Caucus now as a fellow? Yes. Currently, I am the Yorokoshiyama Fellow, and I helped um, those that are facing um, deportation or those that are still incarcerated, waiting to be released, to provide resources for them, to offer like emotional support, um, let them know that they're not alone, there's community out there fighting for release. And also, I go out into the communities, and I speak um, at schools, at programs, um, educating them about... Um, from the incarcerated people, um, just humanizing, you know, sh telling them like my story, sharing them like other people's stories that are detained or facing deportation. Because I, I, I feel like um, someone that like myself that have experienced like um, you know, incarceration, detention, um, being an immigrant. What way can people, um, you know, understand is to getting like the our own, you know, personal narrative, you know, face to face. And, um, and that's, that's how you like you change people's like perspective and help to get them involved. And, you know, in the work that we do defending like immigrants rights. Um, and, uh, you know, I've been very grateful because they Asian Law Caucus were very instrumental in my release and not being able like to give back and to be part of this great like social movement, you know, defending our immigrant communities. Because again, like why should someone be criminalized because of their immigrant status? Um, just like anybody, you know, that did their time um, being a U.S. citizen, they're being left alone to continue their parole plans to build, you know, their lives and integrate within the community. But it's a, like uh, more of a double challenge for those that... Um, are immigrants, um, it's harder, you know, as a parolee because you never feel like you're um, you're at home, um, not knowing like when you'll be arrested, you know, um, that they're coming for you, even though you have an ankle monitor, even though you have your like, you're checking with ICE once a year, which I'm going to have to do, but you don't know because ICE really doesn't follow their own rules. You know, they break their own, they break rules. Uh, they come after even people that have no, um, no like crimes, um, there are undocumented, just for being undocumented, they feel like that's being a crime itself, and they get arrested, and then um, they haven't to spend their time in detention, and then they get released, like there's no apology, you know, but they don't realize the harm and effect that they're doing near the person and their family and the community, because, um, um, I, you know, I feel like, again, like the work that I'm doing, being able to like help educate and share my stories and other stories to uplift, um, you know, community members, and um, to get folks who really, like, think deeply, like, how can we make our community, like, safer, um, especially immigrant communities, from the threats of, you know, a system that's built on, you know, xenophobia that feel like immigrants are going to infiltrate and take over this country, but they fail to realize that this country was, you know, built on immigrants from the start, you know. Mm -hmm. can, I, can I ask, so thinking back to you as a 17-year-old, 16-year-old and everything you were going through and knowing there are lots of other girls out there now, um, what message would you give to them to, to, so that they don't become vulnerable to you know, some guy or anyone else who would basically take them 
and right. hurt them. Right. I think more so these days it's harder because the messaging that they see like on social media, on TV, like this expectation that they have to be like a certain way, mm-hmm. how to present themselves, how to carry themselves. Um, it's it's hard, the pressure, you know, especially peer pressure going up. And for I would only encourage those um, that have like um, they a need to fit in um, kind of like love yourself, um, whether it be, um, you know, take, you know, learn to like do things um, get involved in like community programs, um, advocacy work, learn, get to know like what do you really like and instead of going, um, instead of following what people like told you or expect you to do or what you're supposed to do or what you're supposed to look like or who you're supposed to be with, I think, you know, um, being able to like stand up for your beliefs, you know, and sometimes, um, you know, again, like um, we were all once teenagers. What we, we what did we find interest in? You know, we um, peer pressure through you know drinking and through um, using drugs, just um, digging and delving into things that um, you know that we in the long run like you know wish we should have done. But I think again, I would tell you know the 17, 16 year olds that um, that you know they are valuable, that they are loved, that they're you know you know that they're very. Um, unique and every person have different attributes and gifts and it's just the way of um you know learning how to like again to reach out and be build build community that it's okay you know like if you're different or if you um if people don't accept you then um it's not you you know it's them Mm -hmm. um again um you know i encourage you like to get involved you know in schooling and you know instead of like trying to find others to define you and that was my mistake, like thinking if I could find this person to validate me and love me, but no, it never works that way. Like only you can validate yourself, you know. What I find yeah. remarkable about your case, and I was very excited to talk to you. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, going back to you being very young um, and, and all this tragedy through all this abuse, the end of it all, uh, freedom, you know, walking out and and and, and having freedom again was also part of community support of people that you didn't know, people in your mind that you thought, you know, who could I reach out to to help me while you're incarcerated or detained, Mm -hmm. you know, might be like family members, but that didn't happen. This was like, you know, community and and good people out there, part of Asian Law Caucus, people who are part of organizations who are willing to fight for you. Like, what is that feeling? Because I think that people should also hear that there are good people out there who are willing to fight for others when we have a belief, when we, when we have this willing, there this will to do the right thing. I, I think throughout, before I got ways, like throughout the years, I was um, getting like community support. Um, People actually believing my story because for years when I went in, um, I felt like very shameful, like, I was getting like in the backlash. People didn't believe, or people blamed me. But then this time, when I was able to tell my story, and people actually believed to me, like, and saying like, "You should have done all this time." Um, it felt really like I, I kind of embraced it, but then I didn't. But then the more as the years went by, I'm thinking, "Wow, like, um, I should just accept it." You know, like this is this is really great, you know, and powerful. And um, again, I'm very, um, you know, immensely like blessed that I've, you know, received this outpouring of love and support. Um, and I think um, that's what every, like, person that's, you know, fighting, um, you know, to win pr- 
to win, um, you know, to be released from prison parole or trying to get their sentence reduced. So community support is very like crucial um, because again, um, I, I can't do it alone. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, I, and I truly believe because of the community, that's why I'm, I'm out here. Um, like I think people yeah, exist. Yeah, I think because of the immigration judge, um, she, both of them actually have mentioned like, wow, you have like a room full of supporters knowing like the judge is seeing like, wow, she's really like supported, right? So that's something that's really impactful. That's why uh, we at Asian Law Caucus and other, um, you know, immigration rights and criminal, um, you know, form organizations, when we do like events to, um, you know, protect our community members, we show up and show out mm-hmm. because that's how we show like support. You know, yeah. Just and, like, and I ask yeah. this question because uh-huh. sometimes, you know, for many of us, especially mm-hmm. if you're new to the resistance movement or you're just yeah. kind of waking up to the the horrible administration, you're and you ask yourself, mm-hmm. like, what do we do? What do we do from yeah. here? And you you start, you know, reading the news more intently, or you're out there and you're protesting. Does does any of this matter? You know, especially when you've got a leader who seems to tweet his policy changes mm. and, and then you think that that can be law. I mean, it's very critical for us to also understand that uh, this movement, the work, right. you, you have to do it. You have to believe it. You have to show up. You've got to be a part right. of it and the change can still happen. The power of community still exists. Right. Um, right now we're working um, on a parting campaign for Southeast Asian uh, community members that's facing deportation to Cambodia. And um, we're, we're thinking, let's go to Sacramento and urge the governor to partner them. And that's what we did. We um, asked, you know, through social media, the community to come and show up for support. And that's what they did. Like 50, 50 members showed up. And um, the, the press, the media was there. And uh, now they're following up on, you know, further actions that we're taking. And I think that's like beautiful, you know, like communities that don't even know each other, family members that don't know each other. Um, and um, having them like um, to share their story. And I think, um, you know, that's a powerful message that um you know that um besides reaching the governor but we're hoping that it influenced you know other states and other like um, countries nationwide and matter of fact another country i think it's in georgia they've seen our um, pardon refugee campaign and now they want to like do one too you know it's like great. giving them like courage to do so you know and um so for right now like we want these our community members to be, um, you know, pardoned. So what can people do, you know, at home? Like, can you go, um, you know, online or on your phone and go, like, um, to pardon refugees, you know, hashtag pardon refugees, go to our um, online petition and um, take a minute just to say, hey, I support, you know, governor, can you release them? Or we do have postcards and you can fill it out and we'll send it for you to the governor urging, you know, to release him. I mean, there's like little actions that you could take and we're not requiring you to like go, you know, step in the front lines and, you know, do a rally or ice out rally. We're just saying, you like, if you can tweet the governor, like, please release them, you know, little action steps. And then perhaps that those action steps can, you know, give you more, you know, courage to do bigger action steps, you know? And then yeah. come next Tuesday, vote. And those states who are looking at new governors, hopefully those governors understand the importance of pardoning certain individuals. Nia, thank you so much for joining us here on the program, for sharing your story and for having the courage. Thank um, you for having me. I think, yeah, like it's so important to share your story. So thank you. Thank you. Thank and thank you to our audience members for coming here today. The Michelle Miao Show tapes every Thursday here at the Commonwealth Club. Our next program is Monday uh, with the holidays. We have some uh, dates that have changed, so it's not 
every Thursday, November, December, but this coming Monday is November 5th, and we are doing a special conversation with transgender leaders on the leaked memo that the administration wants to make when it comes to gender identity. And, uh, and we'll have a community discussion on that. We also have another program coming up November 29th, 40th year anniversary of the Briggs Initiative. What did we do right 40 years ago? And, and what can we learn from it today? For everything else, you can head to michellemeow.com. This program t- today will air on Progressive Voices Network at 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. We'll see you next time.